we're coming in to have a chat about the latest report from the American Psychological Association. It's been uh, looking at the long-term impacts on adolescent girls of those ultra-thin magazine models. And you might be surprised at some of the results, so stay around if you can. Also, too, uh, later on in the morning, we've, uh, we've just been talking about men's health and those links between emotional health and physical health. We're going to be uh, going to be talking to some researchers who are doing a study on uh, the impact of the birth of the first baby on the father. This is a big one, isn't it? Any of us who've had children uh, often uh, look at the whole family and say it's a whole family thing here: mum, dad, and that first little baby. Well, uh, we'll be taking your calls on this too. What's been the impact of the birth of, of your first child? If uh, if if you're a man, if if you're the dad. That should be terrific, so stay around for that. Also to uh, Professor John Passmore, the great Australian philosopher, is coming in for a chat about uh, the centenary of the birth of uh, William Dobell, amongst other things. A couple of things to tell you about on the roads. At uh, Bass Hill, there's a car in the Clearway, uh, Hume Highway and Hector Street. A truck has broken down at Dural, New Line Road at David Road, and uh, there's alternating traffic flow in both directions. The lights are flashing yellow, still flashing yellow at Casula on the Hume Highway at Demerick Avenue. If you know of any more problems, give me a call, 9333 Well, every Tuesday, we map the millennium with Carol Cusack, a lecturer in religion at the University of Sydney. You might remember we started off in the 11th century. We worked our way up to the 14th century. Last week, we talked about the Hundred Years' War between France and England. Today, we're going to be looking at the Peasants' Revolt. And this happened in uh, 1381. And Carol Cusack joins me in the studio. Carol, good morning. Morning, Sally. Could you explain, first of all, what was the Peasants' Revolt? Well, it was an uprising which took place in June in the year 1381 in England. Um, Interestingly, not exclusively involving peasants, but which had quite a lot to do with general hardships suffered by peasants and other sectors of society uh, as a result of the depopulation of Europe Mm. with the Black Death. Ah, right. So was it anything to do with the the feudal system, the way society was run at the time? Well, yes. Um, Feudal system is a very general sort of term and often it varied in different regions but in England um, by the time we reach say 1380 um, the peasants were very heavily taxed very uh, restricted in their movements and in their opportunities by the aristocracy after the Black Death when it turned out that there were so uh, many people in Europe who had been killed one of the commonplace things which we find in a number of countries that the aristocrats did to secure their position was to enact really draconian legislation restricting peasants from leaving the manors that they lived on basically to keep the labour force Mm. in the country and active and by 1380 in England um, a peasant had to pay taxes to the lord of the manor if his daughter became pregnant before she actually got married, if his son or daughter wanted to get married, uh, if somebody in the family died, they had to pay death taxes, they had to pay taxes to the Lord of the Manor on any goods inherited. And you might say, well, okay, you know, that's heavy taxation. But the really horrifying thing was that they were taxed twice because for every one of those taxes, they also had to pay the church a smaller tax. And so with, say, inheritance, it could be that by the time the 
manor and the church had creamed off what they needed from the inheritance, there was nothing left. So a peasant's life was not a happy one at oh, that time. Oh, it was exceedingly <laughs> miserable. It <laughs> sounds appalling. What uh, what happened? What actually caused the, the uprising? Was there one individual? Not really, though um, it's important to recognise that there were a lot of uh, rebellious clergy and ex-clergy who were sort of uh, laying the groundwork. One of these was John Wycliffe, who went on to become famous later on because he was involved in the move to have a vernacular Bible. Um, he actually isn't one of the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt at all, but there is evidence that he was circulating in May, the month before the, the revolt started, um, uh, documents which spoke out, especially against clerical abuses. He was more interested in clerical abuses than in abuses by the aristocracy. Mm. But there were actually three priests or ex-priests who were active leaders, uh, John Raw, John Ball and William Grindcobb. John Ball was a renegade priest, he'd actually been sacked more or less, but he's one of the, the leaders that most people remember. Um, what really happened was that for some time beforehand there was um, general murmurings, grievances. Uh, Richard II had become king in 1377, four years before the revolt, but he was actually only a child. He'd been nine when he was crowned, I think, yes. or possibly ten. Mm. And that created uh, an unstable situation because a child king has regents and guardians and they may have policies which are uh, oppressive or or difficult to interpret and the king is essentially powerless, just a figurehead. Yes. Um, so eventually, just at the very beginning of June, on June the 2nd, what started as a sequence of local uprisings um, kind of snowballed in the, in the time that uh, it only ran for three weeks. Um, on June the 2nd in Essex, um, a villain, an unfree person, had been captured by a public official and people rioted in the streets at the injustice of the fact that some people were free and some people weren't free. And in this region, uh, a man called Watt Tyler, whom we presume was a Tyler, person who mm. put roofs on, mm. emerged as the leader. Uh, down in Kent, on June 4, two days later, John Ball, the renegade priest, got out of jail. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury actually released him because his sentence was up and he volunteered himself as leader of the men of Kent and men from Kent and Essex marched separately on London, sacking a lot of large houses and monasteries on the way. Um, it's quite interesting. They had some method in their madness. Um, the things that they were looking for, they looted, you know, general looting, that's totally understandable, but they also searched for and destroyed documents of indenture and charters of ownerships or rentals mm. which would actually free people from the bonds of having to pay all of this money to their feudal overlords. So they were systematically trying to uh, burn all of the documents that... Uh, that uh, formalised structures of oppression so that then the people would be free, yes. so to speak. Were they stopped in any way uh, by, by police or, or soldiers? Not really. They got to London fairly mm. um, you know, unmolested, really, collecting people all over the place. The thing that's quite interesting is that um, there were other people 
who were certainly not peasants involved, minor nobility even, um, what Tyler being a Tyler that implies he's an artisan or craftsman, he's not actually living on the land. Um, the clergy and ex-clergy were all literate, educated people. They so, were the liberals of their day. Yeah, I yeah. Mm. I think that's probably a very good way of putting it. Mm. Um, we're getting close to the end of the 14th century. People have been very, very affected by the spiritual Franciscans' debate about poverty and about the, the uh, sinfulness of riches. Mm. And so this kind of looting and sacking, especially of ecclesiastical properties, is, is completely understandable. Uh, when they got to London, um, things were very interesting. Um, one of the aldermen of uh, the London Council just let the Kentishmen in, which means it would imply that there was sympathy for their cause yes, in the capital indeed. as well, mm. you know, which... It's interesting. Um, the king uh, was in the Tower of London at the time, which we think of now as a prison, but it was just a palace. Um, the men rioting killed a lot of foreign mercenaries. Um, interestingly, in times of hardship, often xenophobia arises. You hate the foreigners who you see as taking jobs or money. Um, the king, after he'd taken refuge in the tower, had to move on again when another group of peasants actually managed, and revolting people actually managed to break into the tower. Mm. At this time, I think Richard was about 13 or 14, and he wanted to be in on the negotiations, but most historians nowadays think that he played quite a good figurehead role, but somebody else must have been... Yes, kind of interpreting it for him. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, feeding him lines, mm. maybe, kind of setting it all up. Mm. And as it is, like many of these things, it kind of went out with a whimper rather than a bang, mm. because... Um, Mobs like this, I mean, there's no doubt that there were a lot of them and they were very angry and they had some quite skilled leadership. But if you remove the leadership, um, usually this kind of thing disperses. It, it's kind of built up on uh, emotion and... Yes, the rhetoric of the leader and... Yeah. Yeah. Do they get so. what they wanted in the end? Were they released from their, from their bonds? Not really. See, this is the problem. Um... Richard entered the negotiations and met with the peasants out at, uh, I think, Mile End in London, which was then outside the borders of the city. It was kind of basically fields. And what Tyler, who was the most important leader involved with that group, was actually killed by one of the people in Richard's um, entourage. And when the peasants saw their leader go down, um, they were totally distracted they didn't really know what to do and Richard actually took advantage of this we think this is definitely true because there's actually a number of uh, of accounts of this um, of the peasants revolt that are quite contemporary there's a thing called the Anonymal Chronicle there's the monk of Evesham's account and there's another monk called Walsingham who wrote an account and they all seem to agree that what he did was when he saw Tyler go down and saw the mob begin to become confused and distressed by this he rode his horse into the middle of them and told them that they should have no other leader apart from him, that, mm. that he was their king. And um, then he kind of challenged them, were you planning to kill me, you know, would, would you kill your king? Which is actually prophetic words in a way because the poor man was killed in 1399, mm. though not 
by rebellious peasants or, or nobles or anybody, but by the machinations of his own first cousin, Henry the Fourth, who'd stolen the crown from him. Ah, so another story. Another drama, <laughs> yes. But uh, apparently these people who had been confused and distressed by the loss of their leader, they looked to the king up on his charger, very um, attractive youth he was. Most of our portraits of him show him as rather handsome. And um, they apparently sort of were pacified and, and dispersed rather rather gently. And they didn't really get that much in the way of terms. The fact that people recognised that their cause was just can be seen because actually very, very few people were really punished or, or executed. Yes, um, so there was some sympathy within the ruling elite. Well, I think that when you contrast it with the big revolt in Paris, the Jacquerie, which took place in 1358, so quite a bit earlier, you know, directly in the wake of the, the Black Death, um, that was put down in the most appallingly bloody and, and you know, high-handed manner. Mm. It seemed that the English perhaps, maybe they'd actually learned from that experience, or maybe they just were in general more moderate and more humane. Um, Foissart, the, the French historian whose chronicles cover this period, he says that there was no doubt that the um, rich really cruelly abused people who were less well off than them. Mm. And if he could have, he could write this, and his patron had been Richard II's father, Edward the Black Prince, and he actually presented books to Richard II frequently. If he felt that he could write this in books which were for um, distribution amongst the aristocracy, it must have been really incredibly obvious that mm. people were being horribly abused and ill-treated. Mm. Fascinating piece of history. Carol Cusack, thank you. We'll talk next week. Thank you, Sally. Carol Cusack there from the University of Sydney, and we will talk to her next week. I think the subject for next week is heretics, which should be good, so stay around for that. It's a nice